This season of the Chefs Manifesto podcast is brought to you by the Crop Trust. With more than 15 years working globally to safeguard our agricultural biodiversity, the Crop Trust has been a strong advocate for greater long-term resilience in our food systems. Through an endowment fund, the Trust is working with partners to secure the most important international, regional and national collections of crop diversity in perpetuity, as well as the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, the world's backup facility for seeds. In short, the Crop Trust's work comes down to one simple vision, ensuring the basis of our food is safeguarded forever. For more information, follow the Crop Trust on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or visit their website at croptrust.com. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. life. Hello and welcome to the last episode of this season of the Chef's Manifesto podcast in collaboration with the Crop Trust. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a specialist in zero-waste plant-led climate cuisine and author of the new regenerative cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. So far in season three, my colleagues Alejandra Schrader, Lorna Marseco and I have focused on Chef's Manifesto thematic area two, the protection of biodiversity. Covering five key crops, including potatoes, sorghum, coffee, sweet potatoes, and millet. In today's episode, we talk wheat, the world's second most widely produced crop, only recently surpassed by maize. Wheat is a temperate crop, requiring mild temperatures for producing high yields. Each year, over 600 million tonnes of wheat are produced from about 210 million hectares. Though there are over 100 varieties of wheat currently cultivated, global production is almost entirely based on just two varieties, Triticum astivum and Triticum durum, the former accounting for a whopping 95% of world production. These two varieties are currently at risk of massive yield losses due to climate change and an insidious disease called stem rust. A focus on biodiversity and the development of new climate resilient varieties from the 464, 352 wheat samples currently stored globally is crucial to prevent these losses and the food shortages that could follow. Wheat is a significant source of various B vitamins, iron, protein and fibre. So let's turn to today's guests. I'll be speaking with world renowned chef Eduardo Garcia chef proprietor of four restaurants, including Latin America's 50 best Maximo Bistro Local, about his food memories and the resurgence of small agroecological farms across Mexico. I'll also be talking with the amiable Professor Filippo Bassi, who is a senior scientist in Morocco at the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, aka ICADA. Professor Bassi works at a gene bank developing new climate resilient varieties of durum wheat from ancient grains, making sure we can continue to feed the world. Now let's begin. First up, I'd like to welcome pastry chef Sahar Param Alawadi from the United Arab Emirates. Chef Sahar is hugely passionate about sustainability and wheat. Chef Sahar has had the privilege of working alongside some of Dubai's most talented chefs, including chef 
Izu Annie, who sent her to Paris to perfect the art of bread making at Saint Georges, before returning to Dubai to work at the iconic Burj Al Arab. Working alongside a team of 34 pastry chefs in a kitchen that operates 24 hours a day. Chef Sahar Paralamawadi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Globally, wheat is the second most widely produced crop, just recently surpassed by maize. It is ubiquitous with our everyday, all over the world, crossing borders and cultures. Now, I know as a pastry chef, wheat is paramount to your work. Please, can you tell us what a bag of wheat flour means to you? It's one of the most essential ingredients that we use in the kitchen. It is available all the time and we use it for so many different applications. So for me, it's especially important because I not only handle the pastry, I also handle the bakery for the hotel and the kind of wheat that we use is important. And we basically serve about nine restaurants and each restaurant has different specifications and different applications of the way they want to present their bread, basically. Everybody knows the saying, you break bread and with every restaurant you go to, most of them break bread with you as a first course. So it's it's a, the very first impression that you give of what your standards are. And so every single ingredient in your bread makes a difference. And the most important one is wheat. So we really take care to know where our wheat is coming from and which brand we use. Uh, we make sure that we're really connected to the suppliers, that we know what kind of harvest they've had all year, how it affects our production. Because, you know, if you've had a rainier year, that affects the way your wheat reacts in your dough. It's not just a, a recipe that we follow. You have to sort of fill the dough, you have to fill the ingredients, you have to fill the room temperature, and it all makes a difference. And it's it all comes back to the wheat. That's fascinating. You said that, for example, if there's been a very wet year, then the wheat is going to react differently in the kitchen. Can you give an example of how it might differ depending on the variety of wheat? So naturally, when you have a wetter year, the wheat is more hydrated. The wheat composition changes as it's growing or as it's developing. And so how that reacts into the production is that we have to adjust our hydration of the bread. It's not a significant amount. It's a very minute amount, but it still makes a difference when we're preparing the dough. And so we have to adjust our hydration percentage to make sure that we get the elasticity and the gluten development and the, the end results that we normally have. I guess you, you're making hundreds of different breads. Do you have a base recipe and what's that hydration? There's different types of breads. And I'm sure you know that bread is the most basic recipe is flour, water, salt, and yeast. Um, and so that application goes across all of them. And it's just a different type of hydration or a different type of process that differentiates the doughs from each other. And then obviously the fermentation process makes a difference as well. There's no really one basic recipe. It depends on the type of bread you're you're looking for. Actually, I've got a loaf of bread in the oven right now. Do you? <laughs> what kind of bread is it? It's sourdough. It's 90% kind of whole grain, which I milled myself, and 10% rye. Nice, nice. That's a nice one. It should be ready just as we finish this conversation. <laughs> the wheat makes a difference in your sourdough as well. Our sourdough, our... 11, we've been maintaining and feeding for the last 16 years. It's pretty amazing. 
Wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah. So do you use different species of wheat when you're making your pastry? Do you have different varieties? or? We do have different varieties from certain countries. The French variety or the French wheat usually is more tailored towards pastry. There's the German kind that I personally prefer for bread. There's, you know, the Italian kind that they specialize for mostly for pasta making or pizza dough. So it really depends. And then the intensity of the wheat, how small or big the grain is milled, the amount of wheat germ in it, all of that makes a difference. And it's, it's just based on what we're trying to do, what we want our end results to be. We also look into different flours as well. So it's clear that a bag of flour means a lot to you. Can you tell us about how and why we should be cooking with a variety of wheat grains and where we need to progress? I believe over the last 3,000 years or 8,000 years, there's been a super increase in the production of wheat. And like you said, it's the second most harvested grain. Crop full stop. Crop full stop. And only just recently surpassed by maize as well. Wow. And so to be able to produce at that large amount, I'm sure a lot goes into it and a lot that goes into it maybe is unnecessary. So it's really important to understand where your grain is coming from and the process of it going from the grain to the flour. Because for example, stone ground flour, that for me is the ultimate flour. It's ground in a very traditional way that it doesn't lose all of its benefits and nutritions. And then you really see that when you eat the bread, you just feel differently than a crop or a, a grain or wheat that's been mass produced. When you're able to start exploring other grains too. Well, not only other kind of varieties and species of wheat, but ancient grains like emma wheat and khorasan or kamut and rye like i i'm using in my bread now mm -hmm. all of that helps protect biodiversity through supporting agrodiversity exactly exactly of course that's one of our key points in our manifesto manifesto point two protection of biodiversity yeah so it's clear your passion demonstrates how important it is for us to respect our ingredients learning about their origin and, of course, agriculture. How would you suggest chefs begin to relate in the same way to other commonplace ingredients like wheat flour in the same way that you do? You just need to research and then, and then do some testing, some research and development. As chefs, ingredients are very important to us. But it should be important to everybody. You should know where your food is coming from. You should know who's growing it and how it's being processed. And that'll make a difference in your life a lot. And that'll make a difference in, in your food. And you'll taste that. The more you research, just go out and buy. You'll see in the supermarket on a shelf, there's the exact same name for five different bags of flour. So you'll find all-purpose flour in different brands, but the process in which that they make it or the wheat that they use will really make a difference. And that just comes from research. Just keep trying, even with different ingredients, tomatoes, you'll see five different varieties of tomatoes at the supermarket and you'll never know which one you like or which one tastes the best unless you try it and then you do your research. So it's all about being more informed about your agriculture. And then of course, like the more you can buy local, the better, because I don't believe that 
you know, our food should be traveling first class to get to us when we can have amazing produce that's readily available to us that's an hour away. And so everybody should be really looking into buying locally or using locally. And and if not locally, then regionally. Start with your small circle and then grow your circle. And unless you have absolutely no choice, then then go on the bigger circle or in the bigger spectrum. That's great advice. And like you said, if you don't have a choice and you need a really high glutinous flour that has been imported from Canada or, or France or wherever, you can still add a local grain into that by developing your own bread recipe or even just topping the bread. Exactly. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah. And it's amazing because we import wheat here in the UAE. We haven't really grown it, even though it's a really big part of the culture. But recently, they've been looking into growing wheat in this climate and expanding their bioagricultural list. I'm sure Filippo Bassi, who we interviewed from Ecada in Morocco, would be able to help with that. I'm sure he's got some variety. would work really well. He actually produced a variety for Senegal to survive in very hot conditions. Like I said, we import a lot of the wheat. So wheat isn't inherently part of the culture. It's come here, I guess, through the Silk Route or something. But it's, it's part of the intangible cultural heritage. And what that means is that the intangible cultural heritage is things that you've picked up over the years that have kind of stayed part of your culture. And I think wheat is one of those things because inherently it doesn't grow here, but we have bread here magically. It's very much part of the culture. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot. I feel like I should go and tend to my bread and I'm going to enjoy it so much more than I would having had this conversation and learning from you. I love the way that you give such importance to wheat bread and pastry and how you described how important it is as a, as a first impression when you arrive at someone's restaurant you break the bread that signifies the quality of the whole restaurant such a basic food like i said it's only four ingredients but it it makes or breaks you <laughs> yeah well thank you sahar have a wonderful day thanks for joining us on the podcast thanks so much for having me tom enjoy your bread let me know how it goes our next guest is Chef Eduardo Garcia from Mexico. Eduardo has opened four restaurants, including Maximo Bistro Local, Lalo, Avra 77, and Maximo, with his wife and business partner, Gabriela Lopez Cruz. Chef Eduardo started his career at age 15, working with Chef Eric Repair, owner of Le Bernardin, who awakened his love for cooking. At just 22 years old, he became executive chef of the restaurant Bistro Van Gogh in Atlanta before returning to Mexico in 2007, where he worked for three years as head chef at restaurant Pujol in Mexico City. Pujol is ranked 12 in the world's 50 best restaurants. Chef Eduardo, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's evening here. Are you in your restaurant now? We are at my uh, last restaurant. We just recently opened. Due to the pandemic, we kind of had a later date. So we opened four months ago. So it's brand new. And so for our listeners, can you tell us which city you're in, where you're at at the moment, and what it's like? My uh, restaurant is a small restaurant group that's owned by me and my wife. It's in Mexico City. It's in Colonia, Roma. 
which is one of the most attractive colonies here in the city. It's super old. It has this super romantic feeling of ages. It's right in the heart of Mexico City. I can't wait to visit, maybe when this is all over. So, Eduardo, today's episode is about wheat. Please, can you tell us about one of your earliest food memories involving this delicious grain? Being that Mexico is a corn country, we live off of corn. But obviously with the conquest, wheat was brought to the Americas. It's sad to say that we grow very little wheat in Mexico. Due to the NAFTA free trade agreement in 94, sad to say that I believe that 99% of the wheat that we consume in Mexico comes from Canada and the US. If you look at the country of Mexico, the northern states of the Republic, because of the drought, they get very little water a year. That's where the most wheat gets consumed. If you go to the North, people mostly eat flour tortillas. Obviously the South, where most of the corn comes from and we get lots of water, all kinds of different types of corn, you get corn tortillas. But the earliest I can remember of consuming corn, wheat was in my village. My grandmother and my mother used to make uh, wheat gorditas, which are made in a very small oven that's made with clay. You put wood in it when it dies. Uh, you put the gorditas on the top of the oven, not on the bottom, on the top. And when they fall to the ground, that's when they are ready. They're amazing. And you eat those with uh, fat from the milk. When you milk the cows, that fat that stays on the top, that's what you eat gorditas, wheat gorditas with. Wow. Oh my lord, I'm going to have to try that. It sounds incredible. It sounds a bit like a naan bread from India because they cook them on the side of the tandoori. Exactly. It's a very similar way of cooking, but this is like very dense, kind of thick, like a small piece of bread and it's whole wheat. It's all milled with stones, so it's not very fine flour. This is like whole wheat. You can still taste the whole wheat and the freshness of it because this is a patches of wheat that we used to grow in our lands. Okay, at that point in time, the wheat was grown locally, like just outside the village or? Like everything else, Mexico, before the 94 free trade agreement, was a country that depended on agriculture. It was its biggest, the biggest economy for this country was agriculture. And after the NAFTA free trade agreement, everything changed for us, for the good and for the worse. There's a lot of good things that came with it. A lot of people became wealthy with this change but for agriculture it changed it so so dramatically for the worse because not only did we stop growing but whatever we are growing now mostly is GMOs yeah which is a concern of course so you've mentioned the free trade agreement and how that's changed Mexico for well for the better and for the worse but I understand that there are a lot less small traditional farms in Mexico than there once was because of this free trade agreement, but also because of the food corporations driving down the cost of ingredients and more food being imported from the US. But like in much of the world, right now, as a response to the climate crisis, we're seeing a resurgence of small agroecological farmers who are practicing organic methods, biodynamic methods, and focusing on the quality of the soil well, in turn, the health of our planet, as well as the yield. And of course, this all relates to flavor and taste, which we want as chefs. I'd love to hear from you about some of these farmers that you've been working with for your restaurants. Yes, so that was the biggest challenge for me when I first opened my restaurant. I am ashamed and sad to say that in the beginning, it was so hard 
for me to actually get some good quality organically grown product that I had to go to the supermarket to get them because they were actually being brought from the U.S. but not being sold for restaurants. So my biggest challenge in the beginning for my restaurant was finding the right people to grow whatever I needed. It took me about four years, but now all of the restaurants here in Mexico City at least have one purveyor that's growing sustainably, organic, and naturally. Um, so now I work with only farmers who grow very little, take care of obviously their workers, which is very important in a country like ours because people get paid very little and obviously take care of the land. Now you see a lot of farmers, they weren't, they, they weren't farmers in the past. Maybe they were architects, maybe they went to school for anything but farming. Even their parents had nothing to do with farms. And in a way it's amazing, but at the same time it's kind of sad because the actual farmers, the Mexican farmer has forgotten their roots and they're not teaching their children how to grow like they used to. They're actually not teaching their children to follow their footsteps. So now you see all these farmers that come from wealthy families, they had nothing to do with farms, which is good for everybody, for them, for us, because they can actually teach other people to actually do it because most of them are people or families that come from education. Now we can get literally whatever we need and they grow uh, whatever we tell them that we need for a restaurant, which is a good thing, you know? It sounds like we have a similar situation in the UK. A lot of the new farmers are educated people who are going to the land for the first time, cultivating organically as a direct response to the current environmental crisis. Like us as chefs, you know, there's a, there's a new group of us. A lot of us as part of the Chef's Manifesto that are really looking to cook with regenerative ingredients. So do any of these local farmers grow wheat? Have you heard of uh, Xochimilco? I have. So, Xochimilco is still part of Mexico City. It's where the Aztecs used to grow their crops, this uh, magical floating islands. It's 25 kilometers from my restaurant. Lucio, which is one of my biggest growers, he's actually an intellectual. He has two doctorates. He went to university to be a poet and what else. And then one day he realized that farming was his life. So he started to rent some of these floating islands, which is where I grow some of my vegetables. A couple of years ago, he started to grow wheat. The first year wasn't very good because the, the earth is super alkaline. But these persons, they're so imaginative and they're so intelligent. They find a way to treat the earth organically so it can grow whatever crops that we are needed. They're not forcing it, but they're actually just making it fertile. And so last year was a better year, and this year is looking even better. So obviously I tell them to save all the wheat for me. Yeah, wow. I think it's worth saying as well that although we have this new wave of kind of educated farmers, they're learning from ancient traditional methods and farming heritage from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. So they're kind of applying their modern understanding of the world and really looking at how they can improve it through relearning those traditional methods of farming. So Jules Mercer, our researcher, told me that you've got a mill in your kitchen. That must be incredible. In one of my restaurants, we make bread for our four restaurants. I'm, I'm from a village. I, came, I come from a farm and I know, you know, when you taste something that's not right, 
And in Mexico, like I said, most wheat comes from Mexico. It's already dead by the time it gets here. There's another farmer that grows very little wheat for me, about 200 kilos per year. So I take a little bit of that wheat and I mill it at one of my restaurants, mix it with other flours so I can make my bread. It's not a big meal. One day I would love to have a big enough one so I can use 100% live wheat. But it's going to take some time because first we have to get the farmers to regrow wheat in Mexico. It's so impressive that you're doing that at all. It must totally increase the quality of your food. So finally, I understand you have a dream to go back to the land and have a small restaurant where you can teach younger chefs about where their food comes from. What would be the message you would give them now? The message, it's always been the same. I think food is amazing. I think the restaurant business is incredible. But I think the first step to becoming a cook, not even a good cook, just a cook that loves food, is to know where everything comes from, to know where everything is being grown. How is it being grown? How can you take one small seed and make 10, 20 kilos of something from that single seed? Where does it come from? I think that should be the first step for any cook around the world, you know, because we all know that there's tons of cooks around the world who love and know how to cook a tomato, but do not know how it's being produced or where it comes from. Such sound advice. And so in tune with the Chef's Manifesto, it's incredible that you're a member and it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's so amazing to be on and hopefully more and more people understand that change needs to be made. We need to take care of the earth because the only way we're going to survive as humans. For the final interview in this third Chef's Manifesto podcast season, I'd like to welcome Filippo Embassi, a senior scientist based in Morocco at the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, ICADA. Bassi leads the Durham wheat breeding team, which aims to deliver superior varieties of wheat capable of withstanding the whims of climate change. In 2017, he received the Olam Prize for Innovation in Food Security for his team effort to deliver heat-tolerant varieties to farmers along the Senegal River. He is a strong believer in the use of wild relatives and land races to achieve better stress tolerance. Filippo Embassi, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. So the first question I'd like to ask you is about your work at ACADA. I believe your role is to develop new and better varieties of Durham wheat, ones that withstand and can even thrive with climate change. Please, can you explain the role that gene banks play in this and tell us about the wheat you bred for Senegal? The, the gene banks are incredible treasure chests for people like me. They conserve uh, human history in the forms of agriculture and environment. As such, they have a huge amount of diversity, all sorts of things collected from the craziest place on earth, very harsh condition where they come from. I once visited in Egypt a land race, an ancient variety that dated back, so they say, to the pharaoh's times, and it was just so different from what we have today. You stated correctly, I have somewhat of a difficult job, right? To try to make uh, wheat farming and durum wheat specifically, pasta wheat, somebody might know it, in some of the poorest areas around the world under some of the harshest conditions today. This is, let's say, without climate change. Let's imagine how difficult these places would be 
in the future as climate change really goes ahead. And when you are faced with such terrible and difficult situations, the best place to go is the gym banks. All these crazy, unique things they have can really help me out in trying to, to do some of these things. You know, for instance, I could go and look at something in the gym bank that comes from a very dry place in the high plateaus of Syria and try to use the root system to improve drought somewhere. Or like in the case of the Senegal River, we were tasked there to try to, to fill a period in the cropping season. Farmers there, they grow rice twice per year, and then they have a gap of about three, four months in which they grow nothing, it's just fallow. We use goat grass, which is basically a weed, is an ancestral parent of today's wheat and has some characteristic of being very tolerant to the very high temperatures there. So we did something, you know, like botanists do. We put the pollen of this goat grass onto the flower of some modern wheat varieties. We process it through um, some selection and at the end we end up having heat tolerant varieties that, uh, that farmers now are cultivating there. This is, I think, is a great story on how to use the gym bank all the way into the farmer's field and really making a difference. And so you're improving those kind of modern varieties by crossing them with these ancient varieties. So you're bringing this old ancient technology and merging it with new so that we can tackle the future of our food system. It's quite phenomenal. It's exactly as you said, it. it's as linear as that. We take the best of the modern, the best of the old, we put it together and we come back with something that is ready for climate change, or at least so we hope. And so I understand that you have won various awards, but for your work, particularly on some wheat that you grew for Senegal. This is the example, for instance, using this uh, goat grass that was extremely heat tolerant. Uh, we put it together and the end results is uh, new varieties, tolerant to eat, that can now be grown under this very harsh condition in the savannas of Senegal. Okay, I understand. And so I also understand that you've been making these seeds available free to farmers. Is that right? Yeah, um, this is part of our mandate of my center. We provide seeds available well to everybody, not just farmers. We provide available for free even to private companies or, 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 or scientists around the world. And, and they're free to use them as long as they make something good out of them. Otherwise, we take away the right to use them and pass it to somebody else. Okay, so they're protected from a private company patenting them and making them unavailable, is that right? That's correct. Um, there's some commercial possibilities with the seeds that private companies can do, but they cannot prevent other people to use them forever. We give it for free, but we want to make sure that it remains free. Yeah, of course. So just kind of to fill in my uh, knowledge gap, because they're hybrid seeds, they can't be rebred by a farmer is that right? No, that's not correct. When we call them hybrids for wheat, they're not the hybrid of maize. By hybrid, we means we have two species inside the same plant. One species in this case was this goat grass, which is a tiny little bit of it, and the rest is wheat. So in that sense, it's a hybrid. But in fact, there are full-on inbreds, which means farmers can plant the seeds, harvest, plant the seeds, harvest, plant the seed, harvest for as long as they want. Wow. Okay. Now that's so important, isn't it? When it comes to food security, ability for a farmer to be able to do that. It's, it's yeah, interesting. Well, it, it, it really depends. And I am a big supporter of what we call certified seeds because they are just better, the germination, the size, everything. So you get more out of it. But in conditions where you can really not afford to buy seeds, this method of saving them, it's very important, of course. Okay. So you've mentioned that we cultivate what we eat. 
What role do you think chefs play in promoting recipes and stories with delicious, nutritious and planet-friendly crops? I come from the town of Modena that was recently famous thanks to the great chef Massimo Bottura, who won for twice best restaurant in the world. And people in Modena have uh, really fields coming all the way to the downtown area. So since very long time we have learned that we eat what we grow. And in fact, this is something we all know are familiar in the terms of farm to fork or slow food. But that's not all. Since a while, we are starting thinking in a different way. I love the word you use, planet-friendly food system. This is really what we want to do, uh, sustainability. So all of a sudden we realize that we are not just, we eat what we grow, but also that our farmers grow what we eat. So if our table is full of unsustainable foods, then farmers will have to grow unsustainable crops. And here comes the key role of chefs. If chefs are able to put the right food on the table, to put diversity on the table, then our farmers will do that as a consequence. This is a beautiful example of how a food system works. One of the things that many chefs are doing, right, are promoting the fact that you have to buy local. This is critical in terms of reducing the carbon emissions in the transport of the foods. And this is great. And when we talk about planet friendliness, it is all about the carbon balance, the carbon emission. However, transport is not the biggest human impact on carbon emission. Agriculture is. Agriculture is at the same time the biggest influence of carbon emission, and at the same time is also the biggest source for carbon sequestration. And not all the crops are the same. In fact, that might surprise some people, but an organic heirloom tomato emits more carbon than a, let's call it, normally grown wheat. In fact, dryland cereals like wheat or durum wheat or barley or oats, and even many grain legumes like, you know, lentil, chickpea, fava bean, they are very planet friendly. They put more carbon in the soil than what it is used to cultivate them. They use little chemicals and require almost zero irrigation. Now comes the trick for the chefs. Once you start seeing what are really the sustainable crops, now you have to put the sustainable foods on the table. So you really need to rediscover old recipes or, or make new ones to really attract consumers in consuming this. And to be honest with you, it is for me maybe more difficult than the job that I have in facing climate change. Wow, that's so important to consider then how and what we cook with as chefs and making sure that we use these really carbon sequestrating crops. So it sounds like using more beans and legumes is a good way to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I made a case against, if you want, organic grown heirloom tomato, but it is not true. I mean, th there's bits and balances everywhere. For sure, everything that is a dryland cereal or a dryland grains, grain legumes, these are the best because the root system stays in the ground, we don't use irrigation, we don't use pesticides, and we use very little fuel to cultivate them. And so these are the best ones. That is chickpea, uh, lentil, these are all great. Uh, durum wheat, barley, oats, let's call them our ancient crops. These are the ones that we've really been cultivating for a very long time around the world. Well, yeah, I mean, at the Chef's Manifesto, we really consider promoting biodiversity through diversifying our crops as an, an important part of any menu. So the next question is about 
wheat, <laughs> obviously. Um, there's a belief that wheat is the cause of gluten intolerance, but like anything, not all wheat's equal. Can you explore the differences between bleached white wheat flour that is likely not alive and the polar opposite? This is a little bit of a touchy subject, as you can imagine. But from the scientific community, it's a very strange one. In fact, this is a 100% discussion that occurs between consumers. There is zero solid scientific evidence that suggests that wheat consumption is cause of gluten intolerance. We have none. Um, if you take the example of where I live, like the Maghreb or West Asia, where I work a lot, people there are the biggest per capita consumers of wheat in the form of bread or flour or pasta or couscous or burgul. They are so much consuming it that in fact the first, let's call it Western country that comes after, consume about half of that per person. And that is Italy, where we consume a lot of pasta. So imagine the amount of wheat that these people consume. And as a matter of fact, there's no any indication that gluten intolerance has gone up in these places. Another beautiful example is the blue zones. I don't know if people are familiar. This is where centenarians live. This is a town where you have people that live past the age of hundreds. And again, their diet is very rich in wheat and, and cereals in general. However, there's of course a diet issue associated with overconsumption of carbohydrates. Now, obesity, of course, is the first one that comes to mind and a lot of things are linked to it. So when you look at the different type of flour you mentioned, there's a big difference between what a bleached white flour gives you in terms of nutrients, and what a whole wheat flour can give you, much more nutrients and fibers. But even better, the one that I'm very happy with, which is the, the mixed flours from different cereals. This is a traditional of many countries in Northern Europe, but also in, in the Southern parts here, where you put you know, barley and oats and all these beautiful things together. And then you get a bread that is so packed with nutrition, it competes with some of the superfoods around the world, and that's great. But in reality, I am a genetician. I'm not an expert in nutrition, and I will leave that part to the nutrition expert. The only thing I can tell you from a sustainability point of view is that when we use white flour, we need to do a longer milling process, which means we use more energy, so that's bad for the planet. Also, we get less flour back. So if I'm a farmer and I bring 100 kilos of grains to be milled into white flour, I get about 90 kilos of flour. The rest becomes bran that I need to feed to my animal. If I'm doing all wheat flour, I'm almost getting back everything that I put forth. So from a planet point of view, white flour is not that great. Okay, and that taps into Chef's Manifesto point for value natural resources and reduce waste. So by eating whole grains, you're saying that Really, we're saving that bran and germ, the nutritious parts of wheat, and feeding them to people and providing people with more nourishment than the perhaps nutrition low white or bleached flowers. Absolutely, that is key. I mean, from my point of view, I don't want to get into the nutrition size, but definitely there is a waste when we do white flour. And I think it's also important to say to our listeners that really what we're discussing here is gluten intolerance and not celiac disease, which 1% of the population do suffer from. Uh, absolutely. I mean, celiac disease, it's a genetic disease that has serious consideration. And again, very, very different things. Yes, exactly. So before we finish, finally, is there a message you would like to convey to our chefs to support a future food system built on resilience? Well, to be honest with you, this is, and it's a great opportunity, I'm happy I'm doing this, it's probably one of the first time that as a scientist I've communicated 
with people expert in cooking, in making food. It doesn't happen very often. And if anything, maybe there's a little bit of disconnection between the science of producing food and cooking. Because if anything, we have a trend now toward a science-less food that doesn't need technology. And that's something that worries me a little bit. Our world is sick. It is. Um, climate change, it is here. It has been for a little while and we only get worse. When I'm hungry, I really have to rely on a chef to make me a great meal, right? When I'm sick, I go to a doctor. But when I look for help in facing climate change, then I need to go to a scientist. I mean, scientists were the first one to sound the alarm on this, if anything. So, but I think the biggest issue here is that as scientists, we have not been able to tell stories. The chefs are real masters in telling a story with their dish, right? This is something incredible. Every piece of things that comes on the table has a story behind it. And scientists have a lot of stories. I gave you the example of Senegal. This is a story I have not told. I was not able to tell it before. And this is a story I'm sure that a chef could put in a nice couscous on the table, telling where it comes from, how it is sustainable. So this would be my message to chef. There's a lot of stories like mine. Reach out to the universities and experimental farms that are nearby you, your restaurants or where you, the place where you live. Ask plant scientists there to tell you some stories and how these stories are helping to raise sustainability of food system. I'm sure you will get some great stories that can be converted into great dishes and beautiful experiences for your consumers. So this would be my message. <laughs> Filippo, that is the best advice I think I've ever received. Thank you. <laughs> I hope it's going to be great. I cannot tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what a pleasure chatting to you today. Invaluable. And I'm sure our listeners will take so much home from this. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure was all mine. And a big virtual hugs to all the people that are listening. Whatever you're doing for making food sustainable, it is really important. I hope you keep doing it. Thank you again. Crop diversity is essential for all life on Earth. It underpins nearly everything we eat and drink. Throughout the history of agriculture, farmers have worked with and bred a seemingly endless diversity of crops, discovering ingenious solutions to local challenges. Meanwhile, many of the wild relatives of these crops have also persisted in nature, adapting to tough environments. Crop diversity allows farmers to feed the world, but this diversity is disappearing and once lost, it is lost forever. This program is a call to action to support biodiversity through agrodiversity, as they say, use it or lose it. There are numerous crop cultivars, breeding lines and populations that we must continue to explore and use in our kitchens to ensure their existence and to maintain a diverse, resilient food system. This will ensure crop diversity is available to all people through an efficient global system to ensure good, nutritious food at affordable prices for all without expanding agriculture's ecological footprint. Everyone has a role to play in safeguarding biodiversity and in working towards achieving good food for all. The Chef's Manifesto in Thematic Area 2 encourages and guides chefs across the world to do the same and lead by examples in their kitchens, restaurants and communities. 
On behalf of the Chef's Manifesto team, our guests and the Crop Trust, our partner for this season, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. I've been your host, EcoChef Tom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. See you for our next season. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. The Chef's Manifesto podcast season is produced by The Chef's Manifesto in collaboration with The Crop Trust. A big thanks is firstly due to all the amazing chefs and experts for joining in as guests and hosts on this third podcast season. A massive shout out furthermore goes to our case study writer, Jules Mercer, for her great work on scripting and questions, to Rodrigo and the whole Crop Trust team for their generous support and coordination, to Philippa and Barbara in the SDG2 Advocacy Hub Secretariat for the complex coordination, to our creative graphic designer, Natalie Cheng, and our podcast producer, Julian Simons, for bringing it all together. Finally, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for listening and for supporting, engaging with and driving action in our Chef's Manifesto network and beyond. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal celebration of local and seasonal food. I focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>